Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary. In this episode, Heidi Newmark presents on her book, Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Welcome to this um, edition of the Book Hub. We have three authors here with us today who bring a breadth of experience around um, immigration, their personal stories, their family stories, and their congregation's stories. Uh, so we welcome today Heidi Newmark, Patrick Cabello Hansel, and Karen Gonzalez. I'm going to let Patrick ask a discussion question to get us going. Um, yeah, so it's a two-part question is one, when you when did you feel excluded, ignored, or rejected? And what were those feelings? Just kind of, you know. Patrick, would you like to share your response to that? Sure. I mean, I felt uh, like I was invisible. Um, I felt like I really, like people kind of just saw through me and uh, that it didn't really matter. I'm going to introduce our first presenter. Pastor Heidi Newmark is the Lutheran pastor of a multicultural congregation in Manhattan and the author of several books. The one that we are highlighting here today is called Sanctuary, Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Heidi, over to you. Thank you. And thank you so much for this invitation to um, share with these other wonderful writers. Uh, so this book, as you mentioned, is called Sanctuary, and it's about different kinds of ways that, um, that we're a sanctuary church and that we're called to be a sanctuary. And then the subtitle is Being Christian in the Wake of Trump. Um, uh, I wrote this book before the last election, and it seemed to me that no matter who was president, we are living in the wake of some of the policies and mindset that was exacerbated during the Trump presidency. It certainly didn't begin then, and it hasn't ended then. Um, my book is organized according to the seasons of the church year, uh, and the reflections I hope to show how the seasons within the church year can inform our experience an understanding of the seasons around us and also how what's going on around us informs how we mark the seasons of the church year within the church. Um, I'm gonna read from a chapter called Pupusas at the Tomb. Each chapter begins with a little quote um, from someone. We're gonna build a wall, folks. We're gonna build a wall. That wall will go up so fast your head will spin. Before leaving Tijuana, I spent a day volunteering with the World Central Kitchen, a wonderful Chefs Without Borders organization where I met Trini. Back in El Salvador, Trini had worked in a restaurant preparing her specialty pupusas, thick cornmeal flatbread stuffed with cheese, meat, or refried beans. Trini's boss went away for a time and left her in charge of the restaurant. Before long, a gang member broke in and held a gun to her head, demanding that she pay them $500 a month, a common form of extortion. Trini explained to the unbelieving gang leaders that she did not own the restaurant, 
and couldn't pay. Before leaving, they shot Trini in the upper arm and warned that the next time they would shoot her in the head. She fled within days. Trini didn't dare travel to say goodbye to her 20-year-old son, fearing that she was being watched and her visit might endanger his life. Trini now waited in Tijuana to present herself for asylum. While staying in a shelter, she received meals through the World Central Kitchen and soon offered to volunteer. Her culinary gifts were quickly recognized, earning her a safe place to stay and a stipend. I first met her after she noticed me in the kitchen, struggling to keep up with the pace of prepping over a thousand meals. Trini was on what she considered a break and she invited me to sit beside her as she demonstrated her method of folding napkins around spoons. Her dark hair was held up in a shower cap, as was mine. She paused to show me the wound where the gang's bullet entered her arm, hoping, like so many others, that the scar will prove her case. After a day chopping onions, folding napkins, and watching her work with a smile that rarely left her face, it was clear that Trini was not doing this only for the money. I saw a woman engaged in defiant resistance, refusing to be objectified by pity or dehumanized as a criminal. Like Jesus in the face of betrayal, Trini holds out bread. In the face of suffering, Trini rises at dawn to, break, to bake bread to feed the hungry multitudes. With her wounded arms, she offers life. She nourishes hope. During my time at the border, I saw no children in cages, but I saw the geography of Good Friday with shackles and barbed wire, sharp and cruel as a crown of thorns stretched before me on every side. Guards and guns, sweat and fear closed in, but none of it could stop the stubborn belief that Easter was coming. In fact, Easter was already there, pulsing in a throng of waiting hearts. As Clarence Jordan once said, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is not that we shall die and go home to be with him, but that he has risen and comes home to us, bringing all his hungry, naked, thirsty, sick prisoner brothers with him. When I came back home and shared photos and stories from the border, Trinity worship planners were inspired to bring the reality closer to the full congregation's awareness in a visceral way. They put out a call for volunteers to help with a painting project. We ordered two seven foot high canvas room dividers and gathered a group of artistically inclined people and others who simply brought their willingness to pick up a paintbrush. The task was to repl replicate a section of the border wall based on a photo I took. Painting the metal slats of the wall occupied those with no special painterly skill, and one of our artists led a few others to fill in details of the desert background. After two intensive Saturday sessions with breaks for pizza, we had our wall. We placed the wall at the entrance of the sanctuary on either side of our central aisle. No one could enter the church without facing it. Our baptismal font stood in the entrance as well, in the middle 
of the dividing wall. We filled it with sand to represent the desert and placed a bowl of water on top. We wrapped the font in barbed wire, a scandalous reminder that our holiest things have at times been hideously perverted. As people entered the space and passed through the wall on their way to find a seat, they could read some explanatory material. The walls ahead represent the walls on our southern border, a reminder of the many walls that divide us from God and from one another. The sand in our baptismal font represents the desert where God's children continue to perish for lack of water and lack of compassion. You are invited to touch the water as a reminder of the life-giving promises God pours out in baptism. I understand that walls, barbed wire, and nativity sets in dog cages are not the preferred direction of liturgical arts in most congregations. When I visited one of our church members who now resides in a nursing home, Peter's eyes lit up when he saw me and he excitedly began to tell me about his latest adventure. Apparently, Trump had moved into the fifth floor of the nursing home and Peter was livid. It was intolerable that Trump should invade his space like this. After many months of acclimating, Peter had finally settled into the home and found a measure of peace there, but now Trump turned up and spoiled everything. Peter told me he complained repeatedly to supervisors and administrators and that thanks to his persistence, the staff agreed to move Trump to a different floor. As Peter shared about his relief and his hero status among the other fifth floor residents, we sat in a common room with an enormous TV. I will allow you to guess what larger than life face was beaming down on us throughout our conversation. Peter may have had increasing signs of dementia, but he was not wrong. Don't we all feel that Trump has moved into our headspace, head if not into our homes? Many of us are like Peter. We want to enter our sanctuaries, settle down, and find some of the peace that passes understanding. Church worship can offer longed-for respite from our problems, both personal and national. We need such time to step away as Jesus did, even if he was often interrupted by anxious disciples and needy crowds before he was ready for them. All of this suggests the paradoxical nature of sanctuary. The rabbis, who knew something about Sabbath rest, instruct in the Talmud, never pray in a room without windows. To me, this means that prayer is relational, nurturing my relationship with God and simultaneously drawing me closer to the world around me. Prayer is not an escape, but rather a deepening of connections. Can we say we offer sanctuary if our actual fears, struggles, doubts, hurts, and anger must be left outside the doors? If we deliberately close our minds and hearts from considering the suffering of those beyond our windows and walls? Will a queer person feel safe and seen if we fly a rainbow flag outside but neglect to light candles and pray for the victims of the Pulse Massacre inside? Can Black Lives Matter if attacks on the Black community are not repudiated, visibly grieved, or even mentioned in church? It's remarkable 
that people who gather to worship in spaces with a cross prominently displayed become upset about politics in the sanctuary. No matter what meaning we find in the cross, what theory of atonement we adhere to, the cross represents a tool of political oppression and suppression. The Roman Empire used the cross as an instrument of torture and punishment. As one of my childhood pastors used to say, Jesus was not crucified on a golden cross between two candlesticks. Yet many worshipers do not view the cross as disturbing the peace. We're used to it. We're not used to walls and barbed wire in our sanctuaries. We're not used to seeing the face of trans women or the names of murdered black men and boys on our crosses. These things should shock us, not for shock's sake, but to force us to face the horror that attends the act of crucifixion on Golgotha and the continued suffering of God's children. This does not mean that worship really rehashes the news. I enter a church sanctuary hoping to find some Holy Spirit perspective. I arrive in need of fresh hope and inspiration, born of lament, repentance, prayer, and praise, but not a spell of amnesia. We need times for contemplative prayer that differ from our communal Sunday morning worship, but even contemplative prayer is not a practice for mystical escape artists. The word contemplate comes from the Latin contemplatus, to gaze attentively, to observe from calm together plus templum, temple. Contemplation requires a time and space set apart for the act of looking deeply into the nature of things. The Talmudic scholar Rabbi Yohanan connects the advice to pray with open windows to a line in the book of Daniel. He continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to God. It's interesting that Daniel's prayer in this room is an act of civil disobedience that will cause the king to throw him to the lions. Daniel was a Jew exiled in Babylon where the king had just signed a law forbidding anyone to pray to any god or human other than the king himself. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house with open windows in its upper room and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God in defiance of the law of the land. I believe that the detail of the windows open toward Jerusalem illuminates a deeper meaning to the Talmudic instruction. Besides openness to the cries of the world around us, to look to Jerusalem means to fix our sight on the future, to look toward the dawning of a new day. For Christians, it means to keep before us a vision of Easter, of new creation, of the world as God intends it, without tyrannical kings or messianic presidents. Our wall stood through the season of Lent and Holy Week, but our worship team decided to remove it on Easter when our focus as a community shifts from crucifixion to resurrection. Rather than disassemble it in private though, they thought to include it in the resurrection day service. As the chords of our opening hymn rang through the colorful, bombinating crowds of Easter with every child clutching a little bell, we heard the words, but now in Christ, 
You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. And then, as everyone turned to face the festive procession of worship leaders, and we sang out the first of many alleluias, each accompanied by eager bell ringers, a team dismantled the panels of the wall and danced them away like the angels who once removed a massive stone in a garden mm. where the stakes of life and death were everything. So if we have a couple minutes left, it, I don't know if anyone has any questions um, they'd like to ask at this point. Heidi, I have one. On behalf of all pastors everywhere, when you do something um, that's a grand gesture, like bringing a piece of the wall into the sanctuary, um, how do you know that you're not going to that you're going to be able to engage those who will be offended by this or um, just not understand. How, how did you work that out in the first place? Uh, well, I think you have to know your context and your congregation. Something done in collaboration with others. I mean, it was the congregation, which includes um, quite a few immigrants um, that, want, that sent me to the border. Um, I'm not in a congregation where anybody would be offended by that or not understand that. Although there were explanations about it. I mean, it did need some explanation for some people just walking into the sanctuary. But I would say in a congregation that um, maybe has more mixed um, views. I mean, my congregation doesn't have a single Republican or anyone who voted for Trump. So we're very diverse, but not not in that sense. So, I mean, I think it would be a good idea to um, maybe look at it, look at the look at a season of the church year and and um, think of how it connects to things going on outside the windows of your church, and um, you know, if it's Lent, and you know, what are the what are things that divide us? Um, where we are, and which might which might include politics. Um, where are people suffering in our community, and are there ways to um, weave that in beyond our prayers, but even in other ways liturgically to call our to call it to our minds as as we worship. Um, so I don't see it as something like oh I have this idea in my head and. You know, let's just do it and see and shock everyone. That that isn't how I see that working. Mm -hmm.